This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by Bleecker Street, presenting the film Captain Fantastic, starring Viggo Mortensen. He raised his family off the grid until they had to go on the road. USA Today raves, Viggo Mortensen is a marvel, and the Washington Post says, it's funny, wise, and deeply moving. Experience this official Sundance selection and the winner of the directing prize of Uncertain Regard at the Cannes Film Festival. Captain Fantastic, now playing in select theaters. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor-in-chief critic. Ann Thompson is on vacation this week, getting some much-needed rest, and she'll be back soon. So in the meantime, I found this interesting character wandering our hallways named David Ehrlich. I think he's a, a little jet-lagged. Our film critic from Karlovy Vary, which was his, his first time going overseas for a European film festival. So he seems to be adjusting okay. How did it go for you out there? Uh, it was great. I went to Berlin two years ago, so second time overseas for anyone for out there the record. who's keeping score of these things, <laughs> wondering if I made all that up. Uh, no, Karlovy Vary was a blast. I'm sure we'll talk about it in a little bit greater detail coming on, but uh, it's, it's a really interesting festival and a really beautiful place. Before we get into too much detail, I mean, tell us a little bit more about it. I mean, what, what did sure. you glean about what Karlovy Vary is? I mean, people know what can is. Yeah, I mean, this is a bit reductive, but my, my one, sort of my elevator pitch about Karlovy Vary is that it's sort of to can what South by Southwest is to Sundance, in that the most exciting things to see tend to be holdovers from a previous festival, that uh, this is the first place they've played since. Uh, but there are a ton of exciting new films that are either having their international uh, or world premieres there, most of which, in the case of Karla Vivari and not South by Southwest, uh, come from Eastern Europe uh, and will probably not receive distribution here. But they are an eclectic, challenging, compelling group of movies uh, from what few of them, from what I can tell from the few that I was able to screen in time, uh, it, there's a lot of movies at that fest. It's, it's not quite Berlin size, but it, the lineup can be pretty overwhelming and packing it all into four or five days, you really only get uh, a whiff of the flavor of what they have to offer. What's the vibe like? I mean, Carlo Vivari is a part of the world that I think, and most people don't totally get what the Czech Republic is like, <laughs> you know, relative to other parts of Europe especially. Yeah, I mean, it, I don't know if I have a sense of what the Czech Republic's really like just from spending five or six days in Carlo Vivari, which is this beautiful, I mean, it's the, the city where, um, I think so much of the inspiration for the Grand Budapest Hotel comes. The actual hotel, the Grand Hotel Poop, uh, which really serves as the chief inspiration for that film, is right at the top of the city where the VIP guests who this year included Charlie Kaufman and Willem Dafoe, who are both receiving Lifetime Achievement Awards or the equivalent, uh, were staying where we, I interviewed them. Um, and you definitely get that old world. It's not the Bavarian flavor of the Grand Budapest Hotel, but uh, you definitely have that, that vibe. Um, it's, it's a beautiful place. The vibe of the festival is a very, the opening night was completely insane. It was like nothing I've ever seen before in my entire life. They have an opening ceremony there. Uh, I, I, words fail me <laughs> to describe, but uh, dance, find like, them eventually. Yeah, I mean, dancing naked men and women. Uh, it was essentially a recreation of the history of cinema with a focus on like Moybridge. And it was uh, like naked women doing dancing in tandem with this light show that was happening behind them. Uh, and this is all taking place in a movie theater, by the way. Uh, and then a live horse, a guy on a horse ran in front of me. 
uh, and Toby Jones was a part of it. It was a bizarre experience. Are you um, sure you weren't just jet lagged and dreaming I, of Toby Jones? I had part? to <laughs> ask the person sitting next to me <laughs> who, uh, uh, to make sure that I was not making this all up. Uh, and, you know, hockey player Yarmir Yager, a favorite of mine who's a god there, and I'm told is going to be the future president of that country, was sitting behind me. Uh, it was, uh, and this is a black tie event. It was really crazy, but the festival definitely has an accessible vibe to it, um, but there is a really strong sense of old money and ostentatiousness in a fun way, a little bit of that can flavor. Yeah, going I think around. what's really interesting to, to people who just you know go to see movies in theaters is when you kind of travel around, you get the sense of how different kinds of cultures treat cinema. You know, you go to Sundance and there's kind of like that scrappy American indie vibe is sort of like they, they wear that on their sleeve. That's, that's their identity. Whereas in other parts of the world, like you go to Cannes, which is trying to represent cinema from this, you know, French perspective of this high art form and the vibe is completely a different universe. Yeah. And then some of these smaller European ones, it's like a happy medium where they're trying to bring in sort of their own kind of cultural identity, whatever it is, however idiosyncratic it might be, but it is still kind of uh, more elegant and classy than something you might see yeah, in the US. I mean, the vibe from, from Carlo Vivari from the Czech Republic is that they really want to be included in the greater conversation about film, and they deserve to be. I mean, the, the Czech, some of the Czech films that I saw there were excellent, um, and they are, yeah, the overwhelming sense was that they they want to be in the discussion. They want to either serve as a platform for films that people are already talking about or from around the world, and also sort of, not quite a Trojan horse approach, but just sort of with that flow, uh, include their own films and help get them seen in places and, and written about in places where they may not otherwise. Um, so they're really sort of in the sweet spot between a number of these different vibes. Uh, and I mean, that town really comes alive. I, all the people who I spoke to from the Czech Republic who were there say that they never go to Karlovy Vary, ever. <laughs> that they're all from Prague uh, and they wouldn't have been there. But when the festival happens, it's, it's like, uh, I'm trying to think of the American equivalent, but it, it, it's, it's essentially like the summer season in uh, Montauk or something. I mean, like the town right. explodes. Well, and I go to Locarno every year. This will be my sixth year, and it's actually a similar kind of thing. It's not quite an A-level festival, and actually in Europe they do have actual grading scales for these festivals. I think that these are like B-level or something, but it's they're, they're big enough in a way that they attract a European audience that's looking for a certain kind of festival that's pretty accessible, and they happen in places where you can do that. Yeah. Locarno is also sort of a summer vacation town that doesn't attract movie people necessarily, but they'll come in for this thing. Yeah. So I think that part of it is, is kind of fascinating. Also, what you're latching on to about the, uh, the Czech element, were, were there any specific Czech films that really stood out to you? There was one film called The Teacher, uh, the director of which escapes me right now, but it was you know, the, the specter of communism it weighs very heavily over there still to this day. Um, and this was a sort of serial comic movie. Uh, it reminded me of that movie from a few years ago from Quebec, Mr. Lazar. Oh yeah, Mr. Lazar. Yeah, uh, but with a lighter, more droll touch about a teacher in communist era Czechoslovakia who used her spot in the party to blackmail all of her kids' parents, all of her students' parents, to get 
I don't know, to get them to do favors for her and errands, and it just sort of became about how communism, uh, as they say, a good idea in theory, in practice, uh, it has uh, complications, you know, at a very human level, and it was a, a droll comedy that uh, that really made the most of that. And I think it's hard to know, even though that film has a more universal touch, something that's so rooted in this one particular place in time, it, and it's very true to that, and seemed to get a strong response from the local crowd. It's hard to know if a film like that has much of a shot internationally, but in that moment and in that room, it played like gangbusters. Right, it's very specific to that crowd, which is what the fe film festivals are essentially trying to do, narrow casting in a way, unless you're can when you just sort of say, you know, this is supposedly the vessel for the best stuff out there, and then most people have to wait a while to figure out if that's true or not, but you got to catch up on a few cases. Yeah, shows, the, right? the, uh, it was night and day in terms of press attention. You could tell from the press screenings there between the buzzed about Cannes movies that were having their second wind at Karlavi and the new stuff where, uh, I mean, they don't really seem to have fire codes in the Czech Republic, and so like <laughs> the screening of the, the Patterson or The Handmaiden I went to, there were people standing all around the movie theater. Uh, they were sitting on top of each other in the aisles. Uh, it was madness. Then you go to a press screening or something else and it would be desolate. And a lot of that stuff was in the video library. But anyway, the, uh, um, the handmade... I mean, it's amazing you're describing a Jim Jarmusch movie and a Park yeah. Chan Wook movie and there's like pandemonium. <laughs> the pandemonium. There was, I saw, uh, it was inches away from uh, what could have been a really, really violent fist fight at one point involving a safe seat uh, before The Handmaiden. Uh, which was the Park Chan-wook film that I took to really strongly. And I saw Tony Erdman with a public crowd uh, at the one showing they had at nine in the morning. Uh, and I have never, and I think this says as much about audiences over there, not to make sweeping generalizations, uh, but I have limited experience to draw from, uh, than it does the movie itself. I've never heard a movie audience laugh as loudly as they did in the third act of Tony Erdman. In this the theater. big nude party yeah, scene. Yeah, it was like cacophonous. It was like yeah. firework. I mean, it was crazy. Uh, and I was, you know, but then the, this, there's a scene right before that, a, a karaoke scene, where I was laughing hysterically and the rest of the room was silent, so <laughs> it tastes very... I mean, that's a fascinating movie, too, because it's this, like, two-and-a-half-hour father-daughter bonding story of sorts. It's really hard to categorize, because it's not... If you go in assuming it's a, a comedy, you know, like, the way that a big studio version of what this movie is would be, there's some parts of it that are completely the opposite of oh, that. Yeah. And then other places, it, it is kind of like this farce where her dad is like wearing this costume, basically this disguise, to just like <laughs> spy on her adult daughter's life. It's, it's uh, yeah, I think Marinade, the director, has said that she thought she was making a drama, <laughs> and then the film sort of took on a life of its own. I don't know how uh, sort of wry she's being in saying that, but. The, uh, there is a set piece towards the end of this movie that Eric mentioned that uh, is more uproariously funny than anything I've seen in a long time. And, and according to the crowd that I was seeing it with, uh, funnier than anything that has ever happened anywhere. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the can, it was in the middle of the summer very nice to be reminded that movies can be good. Yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it, absolutely. I mean, and then of course there was some more tragic reminder of that, which was the death of Abbas Kiristami, which, uh, you know, I'm sure it must have been fascinating to be in an environment of cinephiles and get information like that. I mean, what sort of, you know, reaction? Yeah, it was, uh, it was strange. I, 
you know, I was in a screening of a film that's actually out here right now called Life Animated, which is not a particularly well-made movie, but it's sort of emotionally pornographic and was already sort of, <laughs> it touched a nerve with me. And it was around 11.30 at night in Karlovivari when I got out of the movie and saw the news. And uh, I was standing in the middle of the movie theater, which was appropriate enough for me. Uh, Car you know, Abbas Kiristami is, Close Up is, is my favorite film, full stop. And uh, watching that at, at film school and having a discussion around it sort of galvanized my love for film and helped articulate to me why it is that I love film. And so I took this uh, surprisingly, maybe uncharacteristically personally, uh, in a way that I hadn't sort of the other luminaries who had died in both film and, and the rest of the arts earlier this year. Uh, and it's sort of the news sort of broken waves. I think a lot of people were asleep or at midnight movies and there wasn't really a communal sense of what was happening. I talked to a lot of people who only heard about it the next morning when they woke up. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, and the festival is planning on honoring him in their closing ceremony, uh, which has not yet happened when we're recording this episode. Um, but they didn't have any sort of to do in the middle of it, which would have been difficult to arrange. But yeah, I think uh, it, it, was, it was immensely sad. And I was seeing all these Cannes movies and thinking to myself that the big ticket draw for next year's Cannes could potentially be the film that he's been rumored to make uh, in China called Walking in the Wind, um, which will now not be made. Uh, and that was just uh, particularly tragic. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing like when we reported a few weeks ago after Anton Yelchin's death that he was three weeks away from making his debut and we're sort of envisioning all these things that could have been when you look at the pieces and people say this was a smart guy, a lot of ambition, wanted to go a certain direction. With Kirstami, I mean, he was 76 years old, had made movies under what a lot of people would describe as impossible conditions and in, in, by, by most accounts, was able to do it exactly the way he wanted to do. I mean, he was such an uncompromising filmmaker. Even to, if he had to leave Iran to, yeah, to do that exactly. sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes he had to work around it, but I mean, he never censored himself, and uh, he never stopped inventing. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing when you look at uh, the way in which filmmakers are restricted in this country to making things in certain kinds of ways. We live in a pretty ageist society, and then in other parts of the world, people can really hit their prime in their later years. I mean, Kiristami kept going for it. I mean, you could argue that Certified Copy or Like Someone in Love, his last two films, aren't on the level of close-up in terms of trying to, you know, reinvent the art form, but these are movies that challenge you in ways that nobody else is doing. I agree. I mean, I, ha I happen to think that, um, you know, it, it, one, it, not that there needs to be reasons for it to be more tragic, uh, but it, it, it's even more so just because he was so engaged and so still sort of reinventing cinema for himself and for us. I think Like Someone in Love like uh, and Certified Copy are such dazzling experiences because in their own formalist ways they create very new cinematic modes uh, or appropriate ones and put them into context that they had never previously be con been considered. I mean, on a, on a purely formal level, Like Someone in Love is absolutely incredible. I remember seeing it at the New York Film Festival for the second or third time and, and noting all 60 or 61 of its shots uh, which and how they interact with each other and how there's much like certified copy and how its structure, its form becomes the emotional content. And this right. was always Kiristami's forte, close up being the ultimate example of that. Uh, there, he was still finding new ways to make the sort of the, the ingredients of cinema, the, the, the language of it, 
into something romantic. Right, and no image is wasted either. No. I mean, there, there's that one still that's going around with him next to a camera, and he's got this like gesture with his hand that's like the meticulousness of like somebody sculpting an, an image, you know, that every, everything that you see is fully within the realm of, you know, a prose artist, really, not, not somebody who's just looking for an interesting camera movement or capturing a specific exchange, but trying to use the medium to the full extent of its powers. Although I do think um, there is something to be said for not using the word tragedy associated with this, because, you know, Paul Schrader made this point on Facebook, when, some, when an artist r reaches the, the peak of their abilities to the extent that they are globally recognized for that, and they, they've got this massive body of work, and then they die in their prime, not completely out of nowhere either, after prolonged yeah, battle yeah. of illness, natural, you know, that, that kind of thing that just sort of happens when people live for a while. I mean, is that a, is that a tragedy? I mean, you could argue it's an existential tragedy that we all have to deal with. Yes. But, it, but in many ways, you could say that this is sort of the ideal way for us to, to be talking about Kiarostami, short of not having another movie to talk about, because it forces people to really look at this full body of work. I mean, his yeah. great gift is that whenever he left the world, he was going to have this this huge story to tell, and a lot of people are still going to discover it. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess the question is, where do you start? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, I think close up, even though I would argue it's his greatest movie, is also a great primer because it so articulately uh, and densely sort of outlines what Kiristami finds interesting. It also points you towards uh, Mosin Makhmabas' film *The Cyclist*, which is a key element of close up, and in doing so functions as a gateway to Iranian cinema as a whole, which I think uh, it's not much of a stretch to say Kiristami would appreciate. Um, that film was sort of meant to serve uh, in that function as well, and that can lead you to uh, Jafar Panahi and you know, so on, and so, um, as it did for me. So I think that that is as good a place to start as any, even better than some of his earlier films. Yeah, I mean, you could argue probably that Panahi is carrying the, the Kiarostami tour oh, yeah. more than anybody now. I mean, in spite of the fact that you can't leave the country. Or because like, of the fact that yeah. he's so, <laughs> he has so many limitations, yeah. Yeah, but every movie that Panahi has made in the last few years has really been quite striking. I mean, my, I had the opportunity to interview Kirstami in 2013 when he was here for a New York Film Festival with like someone in love, and I, I, felt, I felt guilty about what came out of that experience, which was partly a news story we did that was surrounding Jafar Panahi's next film, because Kirstami told me that he had just spoken to Panahi, and Panahi was going to make another film. This was after Closed Curtain had come out, and we didn't know that the taxi film where he drove around in a taxi was going to happen. And, um, and it, uh, supposedly I heard later that he regretted talking about that because he was be trying to be protective of mm. this guy. So it's sort of like my memory of actually having a nice little 20 minutes with this great film artist is tainted by the fact that I was also being a reporter at the moment and trying to get some news out of him. But what I thought was sort of fascinating is that you got this sense of like what that community is for those mm -hmm. people. And we take so much for granted, especially when it comes to the creation of art in this country. You know, what these guys have to go to to committing to making this kind of stuff happen. And not only you know, making their own movies happen, but like working with each other and, you know, collaborating because film's a collaborative medium. I mean, it's just insane. It's unthinkable. And he did that for so long. Yeah. So it's like every single movie has to have that kind of crazy production backstory where you're kind of like, how the hell did they pull this mm -hmm. off, you know? 
and and hopefully for another generation of Iranian filmmakers, they'll be able to build on whatever you know doors these guys. Yeah, have. I mean, yeah, it's it's twofold. It's like on the one hand, you hope it gets easier for them, and on the other, you hope that if it doesn't, they continue to to you know so boldly uh, and creatively work around those limitations. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was what I was really struck by though is just how instantly Kiristami went, and this is maybe why I had such an emotional reaction from someone who sort of you know shared this this mortal coil with us to someone who joined Kurosawa and Fellini and you know, these people, Hitchcock, these people who you can't imagine having ever actually been alive, who are these such mythic figures uh, in the history of film and, and how quickly, you know, in the blink of an eye, he went from one side of that divide to the other was sort of uh, striking and it just, you know, it, it makes you think about you know, how lucky you were to interview him, even if it wasn't, even if it was tainted by some uh, unfortunate elements in your mind. Um, yeah, it's it's you know, here the one second and gone the next. It's it's crazy, and for future generations of Iranian filmmakers and cineasts all over the world, it's he's only going to be sort of remembered in that that second state as a sort of this lost titan of film. In any case, I mean the 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 remaining part of the year will be probably largely overshadowed by this. I mean the retrospectives and the conversations that are going to have to happen now. I mean it, yeah. it does change things. Unless, that, you know, Godard dies oh next week. And <laughs> Let's not get started on that. <laughs> Anything's possible. Nobody lasts forever, but uh -huh. you know, but we'll get through that. Uh, shifting to an American filmmaker who's kind of getting up there, but not to be ageist <laughs> because that's the thing that taints our society. Let's get on with um, the the BFG situation in Steven Spielberg because uh, we did a Facebook Live together before you left town for Carlo Vivar, where we talked through you know sort of the complicated relationship that a lot of us have with this filmmaker. Um, Sam Adams had a really great piece I thought on Slate this week about how we all kind of take him for granted. I mean, he is a great artist in some ways. He's certainly uh, one of the most influential and, and complex filmmakers able to navigate the, the Hollywood system and has done so for an insane amount of time. Uh, the BFG, which is like Spielberg in a nutshell in a lot of ways, like complex effects, uh, young child in peril with the supernatural character that she forms a bond with, completely flopped. It just it did not measure up to expectations. Critics were at best kind of mixed on it. Some people really hated it. Um, and most people didn't go to it. You know? yeah. I mean, it was, it was just sort of like ignored. It was yeah. like a kind of cute dog that was just like left in the kennel in some ways, it was just, which is amazing. I mean, like all the headlines, of course, are like, has Spielberg lost his touch? I mean, it seems a little extreme to do that. I mean, the guy's had unsuccessful movies before, but it is kind of striking that a movie that seems like it's so much in Spielberg's wheelhouse just didn't do it for people, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this before the box office numbers came in as far as uh, how a lot of this, the problems with this movie uh, and the response to it may have been rooted in the source material and just how it, it may not have been the best decision to think that even someone of Spielberg's talents could make a, a really satisfying movie out of this. Uh, but yeah, I think that the biggest takeaway from the box office and the response to it was how frustrating it is to read these reports about how Spielberg lost his touch and so on. I understand in this business you need to have something to say for everything that happens and it helps to hyperbolize it in one way or the other, but Spielberg is a guy whose name is synonymous with the movies themselves. Uh, the idea that he will, you know, he may lose his touch as an artist, as you know, people tend to do, uh, age aside, but he, uh, that, that he will cease to be a draw, at least on some level, 
he's had financing difficulties, but that's not really what I'm talking about. It, it seems sort of absurd, uh, particularly because the marketing for this movie seems so misguided. It, it didn't. Fo Here's a guy who is tapping into the same vein of storytelling that he helped to invent with E.T., one of the most successful movies ever made, and one that still has people who uh, swoon at the very mention of it. Right. And they completely avoided that. I mean, they downplayed the fact that it was Spielberg. They downplayed that he had sort of pioneered this mode of, of filmmaking. Um, they leaned weirdly on My Mark Rylance and the, uh, and the you know, CG of it all. Um, I don't know, I, I think that there just wasn't much of an appetite for this particular story, which a lot of people already know. I think it's a bit myopic to, uh, to rule out Spielberg based yeah, on Yeah, don't, don't count it down. But, yeah. but, I, but it is sort of fascinating because it, so, it does make you wonder sort of if that formula itself is, sort of, is, is kind of a red herring when we talk about what makes a Spielberg movie great. You know, I mean, it's, when we go to a Spielberg movie, it may just so happen there are certain themes he likes returning to, but there, there's a much bigger picture going on there. You know, as a filmmaker, you know, he makes great movies that, that, and they tend to do well as a result, you know? I mean, yeah. Bridge of Spies wasn't a smash hit, but it did pretty well. And there was, there, there was some amazing craftsmanship there, you mm -hmm. know? And I feel like BFG, it's, it's, it's something a little bit looser about it. Like, he wasn't fully invested in it or couldn't quite find the movie he wanted to make. Sometimes it's kind of a goofy comedy. Other times it's more of this bigger fantasy thing. And then, you know, as a result, that trickle downs into the marketing couldn't figure out what the movie was yeah. at, you know. I mean, it was just so. like you know he never could figure out a, a reason why he was making this movie, or at least how to convey that. And I feel like audience, and it's never really felt like there was a compelling reason to see this movie. I mean, it, it was just sort of there. And there was also that I think the idea of Spielberg's longevity. <laughs> there, I don't know if this matters to the average viewer in wherever, but there's definitely for me at least a sense of like. Eh, there'll be another Spielberg movie later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, that's the crazy thing, yeah. right? That we do take him for granted Absolutely. in some ways. It just keeps churning them out. And, and in some ways, it's, it's impossible to conceive of the idea of not having Spielberg. I mean, the, these movies that are described as Spielbergian are not that. They are not Spielberg movies. I mean, Midnight Special is like a Spielberg love letter in some ways. It's not a Spielberg movie. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's borrowing certain kinds of formula and so forth, but I mean, well, Spielberg has some kind of bizarre alchemy where it's like only he can get actors to do certain things, to get the camera to do certain things, and to work on basically whatever the hell he wants, and so that's the Spielberg touch. It's not like a Lubitsch thing where there's some kind of, you know, unique way in which the story is being told that, that only this person can do. It's more like this fusion of different elements, some of which are industrial and some of which are artistic, but it's, it's all of those things in harmony that yeah. really make that movie what it is. Which is why still, at least on a critical level, people in our profession would not think, you know, they would never entertain the thought, I think, I speak for most of our colleagues, of not going to see the new Spielberg movie, no matter how unappetizing. Right. It may be, or how lukewarm early reviews yes, might say you that. You must it is. bow down and acknowledge yeah, that one of these things. You know, because there isn't, I, I echo exactly what you just said. I mean, there will always be people, as far as, as long as film exists, uh, who are tapping into what Spielberg did slash does and will continue to do. Uh, but there will only be one Spielberg, and he not, he's not going to knock it out of the park every time. And you don't even have to love really any of his movies, disrespect for better or worse. 
what he brings to the table is something that no one else can quite replicate. And you have to look at the contrast between what he's able to do and everything else that's out there. Yeah. I mean, what's this <laughs> Mike and Dave need wedding dates is like a world apart from As the, funny as I found Mike and Dave need wedding dates, it is not a Spielberg movie. <laughs> but I mean, what is the deal with something like that? Because I was talking to, to, to a lot of folks about it and it seems like, you know, on the one hand, a movie like Mike and Dave is, is tapping into the zeitgeist. It's adapted from this real-life stunt where these two goofy dudes posted that online and then got a book deal out of it, which is, you know, questionable from a couple mm -hmm. of different perspectives. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, there's this implicit assumption that people love, like, goofy, stupid dude movies, and I'm not sure if that's quite the zeitgeist anymore. Did you detect from this movie, which I admit I haven't seen, if it's, if it's uh, sensitive to that? Uh, is the movie, I mean, I think certainly the anticipation speaks to what you were just saying and that like you really don't get the sense that people needed this. I think one of the reasons that Neighbors and its less successful uh, sequel that still did well were well received is because they, especially Neighbors 2, deviated from that sort of bro heavy guys being idiots idea, it, it poked fun at that. Um, I think what one of the things that Mike and Dave need wedding dates does very well, and it's coming from the same writer as Neighbors and also Zac Efron, its star, uh, is that it sort of brings this boorish wedding crashers premise to a millennial audience by making it a little bit more uh, egalitarian in how everyone is an idiot. Uh, it's not just Mike and Dave who are these sort of, uh, you know, frat boy-ish nightmares that the girls, in this case Anna Kendrick and Aubrey Plaza, uh, who play their dates, are allowed to be just as dumb and uh, you know just as sort of just as much at the center of the emotional. It's, it's, it's like a movie. damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Because if Mike and Dave were smarter than them, it would be a totally sexist movie yeah. for just throwing in some dumb chicks to you know animate their own desires. Whereas in the other the other way of looking at it would be something like. If they're the smart ones, then you have that, what is it, Manic Pixie, Manic Pixie yeah. Dream Girl kind of effect. Where I think just it's just about including them. I mean, Wedding Crashers treated uh, Ella Fisher and Isla Fisher? Um, Fisher. And um, Rachel McAdams is such objects. I mean, Rachel McAdams' character is really just there to like stand in, on the side and frown at what's happening and, uh, um, and sort of be an uh, engine for this plot to happen. And Aubrey Plaza and Anna Kendrick in this movie are right in the thick of things, having real agency, whether you, know, you respond to it or not. Um, I think that the, really the best you could say uh, for what this movie says uh, culturally, uh, other than the fact that I found a lot of its jokes to be very funny, um, even sort of you know, against my better judgment, is that uh, it, it knows that by excluding the female characters from that, it would have seemed regressive, it would have seemed anachronistic. And so maybe that just speaks well for us, not as men, you and I, but as a culture as a whole, that yes. baby steps in the right direction. Right, all of this being a preamble for Ghostbusters, which is just yeah. around the corner. So we haven't seen that yet as we're recording, we're gonna go check it out later tonight. And uh, in next week's episode, I'll reconvene with Anne and we'll talk about it. And Maybe we'll tap you again because it sounds like you're going to have a lot to say about it as well, one way or another. So, in any case, thanks for being here, David. Mm -hmm. Hope you Pardon? catch up on some rest soon. As do I. Mm -hmm.